Welcome to the Slate Plus episode for the latest season of One Year, 1942. I'm Cleo Levin, and I'm here with host Josh Levine and senior producer Evan Chung. Hi, you two. Hi, Cleo. Hi, Cleo. So at the end of our conversation for last season, when you were previewing the 1942 season, you were talking about how working with the year 1942 would be a creative challenge, something kind of different than what you usually do by the mere fact that it's so much further back in the past. Can you talk about how that went? I'm pretty happy with how it went. I hope Josh is too. But yeah, we it was a challenge because obviously there's not that many people alive who can tell the first person stories of a lot of the stuff that happened. But first of all, we did find some people who were there who did have some really wonderful stories, particularly in our episode about the wedding mania that swept America in 1942. And also the much darker story about the internment of the Anungan people in the Aleutian Islands. It happened in 1942. So we were able to find some people and they were really tremendous and really helped with the story. You know, in the episodes that didn't have those first person accounts, one thing that's really makes life a bit easier for us in choosing 1942 is that the World War II era is one of the most written about studied periods ever. I think probably other than the life of Jesus Christ, World War II is probably the most written about topic in history. There is a great wide world of scholars historians, writers, and thinkers who we could tap to tell us these stories. And they were really vital in being able to bring these pieces of history to life. Yeah. And touching on that, in terms of methodology, I know you use contemporary newspapers a lot. Were you relying on any other different types of uh, resources than usual? So you're going to hear from Tracy Campbell later in this episode, spoiler alert. So his book, The Year of Peril, was helpful to us as well as other books and other historians who've studied the period. There's a lot of audio, actually, which is probably not surprising to Evan because he is kind of a historian himself of audio, the history of music in particular, uh, as you heard in his episode this season. But it's really amazing how you can go back and listen to a lot of the most memorable moments from that year, but also some kind of more mundane things, or maybe not mundane, but like quotidian things. Just a lot of radio programs from that year have been preserved, so you can get a sense of what people were listening to in their homes, what the kind of ambient noise was of that year. And that, I think, was the most challenging for me in this year, is that I wasn't alive in 1977. I was alive for Uh, 86 and and 95. But even with 77, you kind of have a frame of reference as someone who lived (laughs) in modern America. I would consider 1977 to be, you know, like you can understand what those people were living through and thinking about just based on, you know, I grew up without the internet. There are a lot of similarities. But for 42, it just feels so distant that it's really I think more than the challenge of not being able to speak to that many people who were living, you know, more than that, I think that was the challenge for me is trying to get inside the heads and and understand the decisions that people made in a time period that's just so different um, from our own, but also as we tried to bring out in the series, similar in certain ways. Yeah. 
And then on Evan's point about World War II being such a richly documented time period, it felt like this season was more united by World War II as a theme. Did that feel any different, making a season where many of the episodes either were about or indirectly about one topic? Yeah, I mean, every season we've found connective tissue between the stories, but usually that sort of happens almost by accident or serendipity. For this season, it was impossible to avoid. I mean, World War II just literally changed every facet of everybody's life in the entire world. So it was almost more of a challenge to not sort of beat you over the head with it. I think every single episode had a moment where we said, and then Pearl Harbor happened, because it was such a dramatic rupture in the fabric of everyone's lives that it's just impossible to avoid pointing that out. But yeah, we you know we did make an effort to sort of show wh- what that effect was in as many different pockets of life as possible. So it's not just you know military history. It's not just about um, people getting together to work in factories, even though that's all important. It's also you know how did this affect how people are listening to music or listening to the radio and getting their news? How does it affect how black Americans in East St. Louis, Illinois are feeling about their place in society and within the racial hierarchy of America. These are all sort of very disparate topics, but still just unavoidably connected to the major events of the world. Okay, I wanted to skip to the wedding episode. The characters of the Lutz, the brothers whose father owned the wedding chapel, were such fun characters and it made me think over the seasons generally about I mean you have great main characters often but then also a lot of really fun sort of more incidental people that come in to the episodes I was curious what the process of finding these people is like is a lot of it done through print research are you pre-interviewing a lot of these people how do you find such fun characters for the episodes There's an article I came across during the 1942 research process in Phoenix Magazine by Douglas Town called The Best Little Hitchin Post in Arizona, which was about Yuma, where he had interviewed one of the Lutz brothers, Bob. I first managed to talk to Billy, the younger brother, uh, you might remember from the episode. We, We had a nice chat I called the wedding chapel, and he picked up the phone. And uh, we talked for maybe like 30 minutes that first time, and he agreed to do the interview and to rope in his brother. So the research process was a little bit different for 42 than it had been for previous years because we were not able to use the evening news, the evening television news as a proxy for what people were watching and caring about on a daily basis, which is always helpful and is always good at capturing events that are a big deal for a day or a week, but seem to fall out of public consciousness either quickly or slowly. So in this case, it varied. Books were certainly useful. Newspapers were certainly useful. Um, Searching for, I mean, there are a lot of magazines, including The Atlantic, New Yorker, The Nation, New Republic. I could just list lots of magazines that have, Saturday Evening Post was a really big deal back then and came up in a bunch of our episodes. So searching through those magazines to see what they were writing about and covering. And in this case, 
sometimes you find a person and you build the episode out from them. I believe, Evan, that in this case, we found the topic first, which was marriage, and we found the the charming Lutz brothers to kind of humanize and narrativize a story that was just a big topic. You can't do an episode that's just people saying like, wow, a lot of people got married that year. You need to have Sophie Summergrad's grandmother, the famous Baba, Millie Summergrad, to tell you the story of why she got married. You need to have the Lutz brothers to give their firsthand view of what it was like to live in a wedding chapel to really make the story pop. Yeah, definitely. Okay, The Day the Music Stopped, Evan, that's an episode that you host. You talk about the recording ban that happened in 1942. It's an episode about music, so I wanted to know what it was like scoring it. Yeah, scoring that episode was challenging, but also fun. That's true for the whole season, I would say. So typically in all our previous seasons, I've tried to use music that's actually from the period just to sort of give it that flavor and it's a sort of a, a fun challenge to use that kind of music and it kind of instantly puts you in the time period with the 1942 season that was harder to do for a few reasons one being just we don't have as much available from 1942 you know that we can sort of legally drop in there but also recording technology was different then which is part of what we explore in this episode so this is before the days of high fidelity recording so when I play you a recording from the 40s, it evokes the 40s, that's great, but in this kind of nostalgic way that I feel like is distancing as opposed to what we're trying to do, which is sort of bring these stories to life and make you feel like you're actually there. Mm. So playing too much music from actually 1942, I think instead of like really evoking what a human being is feeling in that period, it more invokes you, the listener, your memories of the movies you've seen from 1942 and about movie stars and, you know, it's less about the actual people. So for that reason, among other reasons, there's not a lot of actual music from the 1940s. And the other tricky thing is, okay, so we can play music that's more contemporary, that sort of sounds like music from the 40s, but then it almost sounds like, I don't know, you're, these musicians are wearing a costume. It sounds phonier that way. But this was a def definitely a very fun episode for me because I very much love music and I love music from this period. So um, being able to drop in all of the, you know, weird recordings that were made from that period to evade the ban, that was a fun way to kind of avoid having to deal with the challenges of finding background music because I could just play the actual clips. And then, of course, playing the music of Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. I mean, I would have gladly made an episode where we just sort of press play and put on a record and listen to it all the way through because it's always a delight to hear them play. So here's a way that our episodes are all connected in a way that wouldn't have been audible in this case to listeners. Evan, do you recall the question that I asked you when we were in the kind of production editing phase of Joel's episode about the double V song? Oh, yes, I do. So there's this reference in, in the episode, in Joel's episode about the Black Japanese access, about the double V campaign that the Pittsburgh Courier began in 1942, the double V meaning victory abroad over the axis, victory at home for racial equality. And there were 
There was a double V haircut called the doubler. There were double V baseball games. There are all these double V things. And there was a double V song called a Yankee doodle tan. And so I asked Evan, does the double V song, a Yankee doodle tan exist anywhere? And what, what did you tell me, Evan? Yeah, I, I did some research and there are literally no records made of that song. There is one recording of it in a movie, in a obscure musical that came out in 1943, but otherwise there were no per- commercial recordings made of it, which makes a lot of sense because the recording ban was on. And by the time the recording ban was lifted, uh, it was pretty much time for the war to end and the double V campaign didn't really apply. So yeah, that's a, a way that Petrillo's music band kind of filtered into the making of our other episodes without us realizing it until until it was too late. Wow. Okay. In the episode about the relocation of the Unanga people, you talk about how that's a story that's largely been erased from popular history. How did you come across this story and why did you think it was important to include in this season? One of our colleagues who helped produce that episode, Sol, were then has done a lot of work on internment during World War II academic work. And so Sol was kind of helping us all figure out what kind of internment story we want to tell. And just a hugely important story about World War II. And you can't really do a series about 1942 without acknowledging internment and more than acknowledging, without really digging into it, how it happened, why it happened. Um, And we just felt like we weren't going to be able to do Japanese internment justice is maybe one way to put it. I mean, just to be totally frank, it's also a more kind of familiar story. And I think where our sweet spot is, is either finding surprising or little known angles on familiar stories. We can come up with lots of examples. One that pops into my head is, you know, Evan's episode about the Challenger from 1986. That's a story about the Challenger that you've never heard before, um, that Evan figured out a a way to, to tell that. So we definitely explored doing a story about Japanese internment that would have been something that you hadn't heard before. But Seoul also suggested and came up with a bunch of sources and, and resources and found uh, Gert Savarni, who we ended up interviewing, this story of Alaskan internment. And for us, we felt like having the opportunity to tell that story, which I wasn't familiar with, we felt like since we were learning about it, you know, maybe the audience could learn as well. And just ultimately how it ended up developing, just having the opportunity to have Gert, a 92 years old, tell her story, her individual story, and also, you know, have the ability to tell this larger story. It felt like something that we could do that would not just be kind of unique and different, but could actually help in some small way, like preserve this story. And so that was, you know, it's a it's a responsibility, but it's something I think we're all happy with and proud that we were able to do in this season. Yeah, and with Japanese American internment, the reason that people these days have some familiarity about it is because of this concerted effort by survivors and activists over decades to make that the case and to sort of raise alarms to people that this is a part of forgotten history. And, you know, fortunately, that started to change. That hasn't happened to the same degree with the survivors of the Aleutian relocation. 
And uh, that's for complicated reasons. But yeah, it felt important for us to make a little contribution by a, giving a platform for someone like Gert Svarney to, to share her story on a wider scale. And there are a lot of academics, a lot of Unanga people who have shared their stories and have done this work and have been pushing to have this story known and heard for a long time. So I don't want to act like we're, you know, the first to get there. It's like not true by any stretch, but it did feel like an opportunity again to tell a story that was less well known. And it's the kind of thing that I really love to do with this series is to have people listen and say, whether it's fake Oxford or something that's way more serious and intense, like this story, to just say, I can't believe I didn't know that story. And yeah, that's a a cool reaction to get from listeners. Yeah. Finally, I was interested in the contemporary resonances of this season. Often that's something that's kind of lying under the surface of seasons of one year. Some of the themes that you covered in this season, things like inflation, misinformation, union organizing, definitely felt very of the moment. Can you talk about anything that was striking or surprising to you or how you felt about making this season right now? Yeah, I mean, the first episode you mentioned about inflation, about Leon Henderson, I think that was certainly news to all of us. We'd never heard of that. And it was Tracy Campbell, the historian, that uh, we interviewed for a couple episodes, and I think you're going to hear from later on in this episode. He brought that to our attention. And, you know, we weren't trying to beat you over the head with resonances uh, and making the connections to today. You know, potentially if we were making this episode four years ago, if we had the show four years ago, I might not have been drawn to the story of Leon Henderson as fascinating as it was. But, you know, as soon as you hear about this idea of inflation ripping the country apart and one man and his office standing in the way of that in 2022, it just seemed like a must-do episode to us. Yeah, I think that's right. And I agree that we didn't hit people over the head, but I think we maybe lightly booped them on the head <laughs> in a in a way that maybe went a little bit beyond our previous seasons. And I don't want to speak for the whole team, but I felt like given that we were traveling back decades earlier than we had done before, I wanted it to be clear, maybe to myself, but also to everybody listening, that these are just people having the same kind of challenges that we all face. And by choosing topics that felt particularly resonant now, it felt easier to pull that off. We didn't want to just pull in people who are extremely conversant in, you know, the military maneuverings of, uh, you know, an Iwo Jima and things of that nature. We wanted everyone to feel like there was something for them in this season. Okay, Josh, Evan, thank you so much. Is there anything we should be leaving listeners with? Thank you for listening, for all the emails, the calls, everything. It means a lot. And I'm really proud of the body of work we've been able to put together over these four seasons, all the different types of episodes, all the different eras that we've explored. 
the team has been amazing. Evan and Sam Kim and Sophie Summergrad and Derek John, Solworth and Joel Anderson, Madeline Ducharme for 86 as well, who was, yeah, instrumental in, in everything we've done. And yeah, I think with the 42 season, it really kind of opens things up for us. There was an excitement in doing something that we hadn't done before and not knowing how it would turn out. And I think there are ways in which, you know, there were probably more interviews with living people than we thought there there would be. There was maybe more kind of contemporary resonance than we thought there might be, which was great. But I think it really expands the possibilities and gives me a feeling that we can kind of do whatever it is that we want to do with the show rather than feel like there are any kind of of restrictions. So that's um, a kind of cool way to end this season and end the year with uh, these four seasons under our belt. All right. Thank you so much and stay tuned for more. All right, now we're going to hear an interview Josh did with Tracy Campbell, a voice in many of this season's episodes, and the author of Year of Peril, America in 1942. With me now, as he was for a couple of episodes this season, is Tracy Campbell. Tracy is the E. Vernon Smith and Eloise C. Smith Professor of American History at the University of Kentucky, and he is the author of The Year of Peril, America in 1942. It's a book I highly recommend if you enjoyed our season and want to learn more about 1942. Tracy, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Josh. Sure. And let's start with the big question that I'm sure everyone asks you, why 1942? I hadn't intended on it. I was actually in the middle of worrying about the financial crisis in 2008. And trying to get a handle on do people understand the potential of what could happen if the economy absolutely just quits, if it tanks. As a student of uh, the New Deal and the Depression, I knew what the Great Depression 2.0 could look like. And so I was dealing with a great deal of internal anxiety and sensing it out in society. And I literally went to the library one day just to look around to see what were people feeling in the early days of World War II in the United States, in the first few weeks after Pearl Harbor, and looking through periodicals and newspapers and something that I might be able to bring to a classroom for a few minutes. And that's literally putting my foot in a river that I was soon washed away, and 10 years later, I I finished a book on the entire year. We found ourselves, I think, in the same river. So in the first episode, kind of in the the opening framing of, of our series, One Year in 1942, I described it as the most tumultuous year in the 20th century in, in America. And our brilliant producer, Sophie Summergrad, was fact-checking and said, a lot of people actually say 1968 was the most consequential or tumultuous year And so I don't know if you have an opinion on that, on whether 42 was the most tumultuous, whether 1968 was, whether some other year was. Well, I'll I'll put my vote in for 1942. How about that? that, I would expect. Does that surprise you? (laughs) And it's you got to make the case, though. Well, I'll let the sources make the case, because in early 1942, people were talking about, and I mean government officials, military officials, that we could lose this war. 
that everything is on the line. And when you see the president talking about our survival and the kind of collective tension that was everywhere, whether it's children, people working in military factories, or anywhere, they realized that everything was on the line and this was a war we could possibly lose rather easily or at maybe at the very best, it would be settled at a peace table somewhere signing a treaty with people like Hitler or Mussolini. So I would make the, the argument that 1942 was that kind of year, maybe unlike anything since the Civil War. So the first episode of our season was on inflation and the man who President Roosevelt put in charge of keeping it under control, Leon Henderson. I ended that episode with a little bit of a, a small poke at the greatest generation, not suggesting that Americans didn't sacrifice a huge amount during World War II. But I think from your book and from you know other stuff that we've read and listened to during our, our research, that kind of narrative of unabashed patriotism by everyone, it's a little more complicated than that, right? It's, it's always more complicated. And, and the exact quote is, the greatest generation any society has ever produced. And so that you have to define what's a generation. Are you talking about the generation that led it, that was born in the 1880s or 90s, or the people that fought it? And it's easy to get to read history backward and then put these labels on it. But once you get inside the sources, which is, I think, the nuts and bolts of history, to read a daily newspaper every single day, every page, to listen to the oral histories, to, to go through page after page of documents to try and see what's it feel like to be in the middle of a crisis like that. I guess you could compare it to when I was in, in 2008, that we can dismiss it and say, well, we know that the economy won't tank entirely, that we won't go through Great Depression 2.0, and therefore all these things that we were hearing early on was much ado about nothing. But at the time, you sure feel that kind of tension and anxiety. So it's always this notion of what's best for the individual compared to can you think beyond yourself to something even bigger? And at least in the early days of 1942, there was the argument that we're in a fight for everything. And that's why if we go back to the first question, I don't think that was quite the question in 1968. I don't think we've had that kind of debate since really the Civil War. And what's really struck me is how human the response was to yeah. this challenge at every level of society, that you have these extraordinary moments, and not just moments, these extraordinary just society-wide instances of bravery, heroism, patriotism, but you also have these responses of, I don't believe that we really need to ration rubber. I think the government is lying. I think that I deserve more than what the government thinks I deserve. And that's sort of full. There's something kind of comforting to me, I guess, that in moments of great crisis, people can step up, but also that people are always people. Yeah, I think in a strange way, history can be comforting that way in ways that we're not expecting, that if we don't gloss over and create a history that never really existed, then we don't have something we have to live up to that human beings in all situations can sometimes rise to extraordinary levels and 
remarkable heroism to selflessness can also be extremely self-serving and petty at the same time. That's the human condition. And history ought to be something that helps us understand that rather than gloss it over with a history that, that never existed in the first place. Our fourth episode, which you also appeared in, was about rumors and propaganda. It's a subject like Leon Henderson, similarly, that you got obsessed with, and it plays a major part in your book. As a historian, how do you go about researching rumors, which are, by definition, extremely hard to pin down? Or historians have enough trouble trying to figure out what happened. And so it seems like a waste of time to even spend 10 seconds on something that didn't happen, and I certainly wasn't expecting it. It was a late afternoon in Washington, D.C. I was working in the National Archives. I had not had a very good day finding things about the Office of Price Administration, by the way. And I wanted to go back into town, and I just got on my phone and started scrolling through the Library of Congress, and I came across this thing called the War Rumor Project. I remember reading in the hallway that uh, it was a collection of rumors taken in 1942, and I don't remember what was said afterward because I just simply said, I'm going to go take a look, and thinking that this might be something kind of interesting. It might be a footnote. It might be a parenthetical insertion. It might be just be a good way to spend the rest of the afternoon. When they brought out, gosh, 15, 18 boxes filled to the brim with collected rumors, I wasn't expecting to go down that particular rabbit hole. But why not? What? I think the things that we tell each other at a bar, in a restaurant, or in a family relationship probably has more power than what we're reading in the newspaper or from a government report. And so that's what led me down this path was the source itself, the fact that we had collected these kinds of rumors. And I I guess when I opened up the first box, I was expecting the rumors to be about the war, to be about our enemies, not that we would be turning on ourselves and that the greatest category would be, as in terms of number, would be hate rumors. But that's what crises do. You see what a society is really all about, and it floats to the surface, not just the heroism or the courage, but also those latent fears and prejudices. Yeah, I mean, thinking of things that aren't comforting about 1942, those hate rumors are near the top for me, and just the amount of racism, prejudice, anti-Semitism, the ways in which segregation plays a role in the war. You write all about all that in the book. Writing history is not for the faint of heart, and it takes a toll, quite frankly, mentally to keep going down these rabbit holes. And so when I finished the book, I felt like I'd run a marathon, and it was kind of draining, in a sense, to deal with it. But I also assumed when I sent the book off in January of 2020 that nobody would be interested in reading about a society in crisis at the time. When the book finally comes out in, I think, May, we're in lockdown, and it feels extremely different. Yeah, and that kind of leads into my next question. Why don't we start here? So 
you maybe alluded to it there, but what's happening in 2022 that reminds you the most of 1942? Well, on the surface, uh, fears of inflation, the kind of political attacks that we're seeing, questioning people's patriotism. But maybe more than anything, what I felt in reading about 1942 was this collective sense of anxiety, of national trauma that extended to every corner of of the country. You know, when you read about kids doing um, scrap rubber drives, it's not because they think it's fun or it's something to do. It's because it's a way to release the things that communities are feeling about we've got to do something in order to turn the corner here and that everybody's involved in it. So if there's anything that I, I feel that 1942 tells us is about this sense of collective trauma, anxiety that we've been feeling since lockdown and COVID and has now been exacerbated by things like the war in Ukraine, January 6th, or even the, the greater threat of uh, this existential threat of climate change. All those contribute to that kind of pervasive feeling of collective trauma. Yeah, and with COVID, the question of collective sacrifice for the greater good is something that's come up pretty much every day for the last couple of years. And so that analogy was really striking to me when we're talking about things like rationing or when we're also talking about things like uh, rumors and misinformation. Yeah, all those things. When something like that hits, whether it's Pearl Harbor or COVID or 9-11, you need good, clear information. You need a firm national response in which people feel like we're in something bigger to meet this crisis. We don't really need a national leader telling us it's no big deal, don't worry about it, or it's not really happening. Or if it is, it's only happening in this kind of respect. It was interesting to look at someone like Leon Henderson, who's out there fighting this every day. A lot of other figures struggling to get the word out that this is something bigger than you, and we've got to be focused on this, that we might not be going back to quote-unquote normal, that actually crises and the kind of things that we have to face, like with COVID, are sometimes more normal than the periods of apparent calm and peace, if that makes any sense. Yeah, totally. And the flip side of the question that I asked a minute ago, what's something that happens in 42 that could never happen in 2022? Hmm. Few things come to mind. I sure don't see a president or a mayor or anyone else saying, I think Americans can't wait to pay their higher rates of taxes soon in order to co- contribute to the national effort. True. And we will raise the top rates to 88%. I don't see that happening. I don't see people willing to ration gas or the things that they feel that are essential to daily life. It's also hard for me to imagine us building things at the scale that we did then. I don't think it'd be possible now. I mean, we had that kind of industrial infrastructure that we could instantly go from from the Louisville Slugger baseball factory to just changing it a little bit so it could make rifle stocks. We don't have that kind of infrastructure anymore. 
but folks who write about warfare in the 21st century would say that we don't really need that anymore. We need information. We need uh, the kind of technological and electronic infrastructure, which I also am not sure that we have as much. But it's also a sense of when you find yourself in a crisis like that, are other people in it with me? Am I in this only by myself or just a few of us? Are we really all in this together? And when you see folks that are making it clear that we are not in it with you, it's a pretty debilitating and demoralizing situation. Yeah. Yeah. So if folks read your book, they'll have a really good sense of what happened in 1842. If you listen to our series, you'll also have a sense of uh, a lot of the events and, and themes that took place and were present during the year. And so what happens next, Tracy, beyond just the Allies winning the war? How does society respond and how are the questions that are raised by 1942 answered? Well, okay, yes, we did win the war and we did produce an arsenal of democracy that was even bigger than anything would have predicted in early 1942 with 300,000 planes. And I mean, we equipped... Our allies, including the Russians, who bore the brunt of, of the Nazi army and lost, what, 20 million people. But some of the larger questions during the war about what kind of an economy we want when we finish this, that's, that was one of the interesting things about this, is that even in the midst of a crisis, there are a few voices saying, if we get out of this and we actually win, what is it going to be about? What do we want to build? What kind of a new society do we want? The first thing people wanted was to make sure we don't go back to the Great Depression. So we want some kind of a different economy. And you could see things like Fortune magazine, which wasn't exactly the daily worker, saying things, we need a more democratic capitalism. We need universal health care. We need some kind of a instrument in place so that if people are out of work, they can find maybe a government job temporarily to keep things going. But during the early days of 1942, the, the question was, will the future be one of autocracy or democracy? And one of the you know, depressing things for me is that here we are in 2022 asking that same question. Yeah, I guess my last question is, what are the lessons of 1942? You started kind of to answer that a little bit there. I'm always worried about saying lessons. But if you look at it, a society in crisis, I think you see it in its purest kind of crystal clear vision of what rises to the surface. What is it that we really want to gather around? What is it that we are going to dismiss? And unfortunately, we fought against each other in a lot of ways. So that what we're going to see during the Cold War, what we see in the 21st century, shouldn't come as a surprise. But that if there is a real lesson of 1942, it's that enough people understood that there was something in this bigger than themselves, whether it's the millions who would fight in Europe or Asia or work in a, in a defense factory or you know, work on a rubber scrap drive, whatever the case may be, or even that they just simply ration gas or meat or milk or poultry, that they were somehow contributing to something bigger. And... To me, what I read and it kept coming through on so many occasions was this idea of democracy, of 
people just being able to live a life of dignity and of cooperative freedom. So those moments reveal a lot about what we're capable of doing, which can be really quite extraordinary and also really quite demoralizing. The book is The Year of Peril, America in 1942. The author, again, is Tracy Campbell. Tracy, thanks so much for all of your help on our series, and congrats on the amazing book. Well, thanks for having me, and it's been a, it's been a real pleasure, Josh. Josh.